So we see sheep without a shepherd, and we're shocked and sometimes personally hurt when they go astray. And that shouldn't be. We shouldn't be surprised. We shouldn't be caught off guard. We certainly shouldn't take it personally when sheep without a shepherd go astray. I was trying to think of exactly the way I wanted to say it, and fortunately, uh, a young man who I discipled years ago this morning posted that passage. So, so the idea here is for us to understand, as we're engaging in the conversation that we're continuing today, and Lord willing, next week we'll be jumping back into Daniel, which only becomes more applicable as every day and week goes by, for us to recognize that right now what we're seeing, we're seeing sheep without a shepherd. The secular left and the irreligious right are in the same boat and thinking that they're poking holes in each other's side of the boat. The blind are lawlessly protesting the blind. If you're listening to this and you're getting worried or maybe even angry, because it sounds like I'm making a political statement that's either excusing your opponents or accusing your allies then I would submit to you that that way of thinking is part of the problem. We need to clean our glasses or maybe just get a new pair. Our nation doesn't simply need a political solution. Our nation needs Jesus. I don't mean that to be just a trite statement. I don't mean it to be sermony or churchy. It's just the truth. And see, here's the deal. We are his ambassadors. We see trauma and crisis and we think that's, that's something I could never fix. There's, I could never touch that. I, could, I have no solution. But the truth is we are the only ones who have the solution. That solution is not far off. It is right here. <clears throat> the lost on both sides of the boat would and likely will violently disagree with this. But the truth is they need us to stay on target. They need us to remain in our role as Christ's ambassadors and no one else's ambassadors. There's not another nation that we are ambassadors for. We are of no extra use to our nation's future if we're not walking with Jesus. We're of no extra use to our race, and you know I mean human race because I don't believe in any others, that we are, we are no help to the human race if we are not walking with Jesus. Our nation and our people need us to be the church. They need us to not grow weary of doing good. They need us to live as the gifts to one another that we were created and saved and intended to be. That's what they need. We see this in Ephesians 4. Ephesians 4, the very first time I preached a sermon in this church was from Ephesians 4. It is one of the most life-giving of all passages about ministry. It's what ministry is all about. We find this is, this is Paul's treatise on what it means to step into Christianity 2.0. You're no longer just a, a consumer, which Christians are never intended to remain in the consumer role very long. Only so long as a baby would continue to drink milk. That's how long... So you you should be moving out of that role relatively quickly, out of the consumer role to the ministry role, to the role of the ministers. And Ephesians 4 breaks that down for us. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ 
until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may be no longer may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, or by craftiness and deceitful schemes. See, there's supposed to come a point at which we grow up. As Christians, we're supposed to grow up, not be children anymore. How do you spot the children in the faith? Well, they're the ones who are tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine and by human cunning and by craftiness and deceitful schemes. See, that's the that's the response of so many when we see troubles in the world is we're washed over here and then we're washed over here and then we're blown over here because now there's a new doctrine, there's a new religion, there's a new way of understanding the faith, there's a new, oh look, there's something, ooh, and we get blown over here and then we get blown back over here and then we get washed back and forth and back and forth. In therapy, we call that a cow, a crisis of the weak. It's whatever the, whatever the person this week, they've had a new crisis <clears throat> and we talk about it, but that's okay because next week they'll have a new crisis and there'll be a new crisis and a new crisis. And that's what children do. They have a new crisis in the faith. It's, it's something new this week. There's some new thing. And, I, and, and the apostle Paul, it's again, I read a passage like this and I'm blown away by the fact that it was written 2000 years ago. Anyone who talks about Christianity being an outdated religion has not checked in recently. This is not a new problem it's something that has been going on with human beings all along. It's not very, Christianity is not very religious, but it's certainly not outdated. Is this still a problem among the immature and certainly among the lost and the blind? Of course. Oh, what's the new thing this week? There's some new explosion in the whole world this week. The whole world's going to come to an end this week. And so we get washed this way and that and this way and that. But whatever new thing. I love, I think there's sarcasm um, in Paul's usage of the word cunning here. <clears throat> tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine and by human cunning. Whatever brilliant thing humans have come up with this week, that now you're chasing after that or running away from that. Instead, we are to be stable and clear. And please don't listen to this sermon and walk away in 30 minutes stable and clear and then get caught up on Wednesday with whatever the new wave or the new wind is, and you're right back to being chicken little, running around, crying out that the, the sky is falling again this week. This is, this is the way for us as Christians to engage with the solid truth of the Son of God. And when we reach that maturity and the stature, the steadfastness, the immovability of the full stature of Jesus Christ lived out in our lives. See, they need us to prepare yet another generation of believers to keep the lights on. And I don't just mean the electric lights. I mean, I mean there is going to need to be in the next generation, 10 years from now, 20 years from now, 40 years from now, 60 years from now, the world is desperately going to need for there to be Christians who have not walked away from the gospel of Jesus Christ, who have not walked away from the authority of Scripture. And the pressures that are coming and that they're facing now already are, are so much more than anything people my age have ever faced when it comes to that pressure. 
The pressure to conform, the pressure to be washed this way, and then washed back that way, and then washed back this way. And now we watch these waves and winds come so fast, they contradict each other, and you're supposed to be washed by both of them simultaneously. It is madness. And for us as Christians, for us as Christ followers, to get caught up in it is error. It's just a mistake. It's not who we are. We're supposed to be living this out in a way that's different. Good news. The good news is, this is who we are. It's what we were created to do. We're not the first Christians that get to live counterculturally. In fact, for the last couple hundred years, we've essentially been the only Christians who didn't live counterculturally. This is good news. This is what we were made to do. Here's some of the basics. Acts 2.42, we gather to do these things, and they devoted themselves. This is essentially the foundation of the local church. Not the church, that happened in Caesarea Philippi, but the local church. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings, and to fellowship, and to the breaking of bread, and to prayers. We've not innovated much since then, have we? We're not supposed to innovate these. We may find new ways of doing them. I mean, they didn't have screens. They didn't have microphones. But that's what we do every week. We devote ourselves to the apostles' teachings. We devote ourselves to fellowship together, to gathering together and learning together and investing in one another and in one another's families. We break bread. If you're here at 840, we do it in the form of communion. Show up later, you get the donut holes. If you're really late, then you just all meet at Slim Chickens at a few minutes after, right? I never can remember. Is it Slim's Chicken or Slim Chickens? Or I never can remember. Now it's in your head, though. Don't go. It's going to be crowded now. You just got to watch out for that. Okay, so... Here's an example of something that has an important place that we don't want to get out of the habit of. That's what the passage says. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25 says, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. So you not grow weary of doing good works, but to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. Intentional silence and solitude are good. They're great spiritual disciplines. Avoiding a pandemic is wise, especially when you have to do that in order to serve others. But mere isolation isn't. It's a bad habit. Fear is an even worse one. For many, some version of isolation over the last year has been unavoidable, but for others, it's just been unwise or fearful. And, and one way to check this is to check and see, are you eager Are you prepared? Are you ready to jump back in? In John's third letter, before I say that, um, I noticed back in Hebrews 10 that phrase, all the more as some of you, all the more as you see the day drawing near. I love seeing on social media sometimes as Christians begin to, whatever's going on right now, we think this is it, right? Jesus coming back, the end is here, the day is near. And, and by the way, I mean, Jesus is coming back. The day is near, the end is coming. But that being said, whether it's right now or in a thousand more years from now, notice that the apostle, the, whoever wrote the book of Hebrews, whichever apostle was that wrote Hebrews, is making it clear what we're supposed to do as the day draws near. And it doesn't seem to be the thing that most Christians do as the day draws near. 
Do not neglect in meeting together, but encourage one another. All the more as you see the day drawing near. So we should be ramping up the way we meet together and pray together and learn together and invest in one another and teach one another and train one another. The way we speak the prophecies of God's truth into one another. See, this should be on the increase when we're facing the day drawing near, perhaps. So are we prepared? Are we eager? So back to that letter, John's third letter. I hope to see you soon, and we'll talk face to face. I was surprised to find how many times we see the different writers, especially the letter writers in the New Testament, reference this idea of how eager they are to get together, how urgent the desire to be together feels to them. Uh, I had to cut a bunch of them for the sake of time, but another one that I really liked was Paul's letter to Timothy, as I remember your tears, I long to see you, that I may be filled with joy. Teachers, do you long to see your students? Those who were not been able to serve at this point, that we don't have as much children's ministry on Sunday morning running or student ministry, do you find yourself kind of chomping at the bit? Are you eager? Are you anxious? Does it feel like God's Word is caught up like a fire in your bones? And you just want to sit down with some people and, and, and help them understand it and teach this to them? Is that where we are? Spiritual moms and dads, do you miss your spiritual children? The ones that you were discipling and investing in and meeting in, and now you just feel like, okay, online's good. Okay, you know what? Having these meetings online, that's, that's great. Okay, social media, fine. But come on. When do we get to walk together and eat together and serve together? Are we eager? If not, you may be using this kind of thing as an excuse to avoid serving. Because here's the deal. Many of our students are eager. Our children are eager. They miss their class. They miss their teaching. They miss the opportunities. Are we hungry to get back to welcoming guests and greeting one another and equipping our children and encouraging and investing in one another's families? Because the deal is this stuff's important. I sent out a a cry for um, some testimonies, and we got a few that we were able to get ready for today. I want to share one of these with you. Um, This is Kelly's. My story is about my mother. Um, When she was three and her little brother was one, their mother died. And they weren't a church-going family. They weren't none of them were Christian. I mean, her parents were Christians. And so um, my grandfather was grieving and a lady from the church there, from a church in their town, it happened to be the Baptist church, um, stopped and asked if she could, I guess she knew their story and asked if she could take my mom and my uncle to church. And um, my grandfather was kind of desperate. So he said yes. And so that started their church attendance. So she took them every Sunday faithfully um, from the time my mom was three. That would have been 1941. And she took them until my mom was old enough to walk them to church and kept going. And a couple years, a couple years later, my grandfather remarried, my grandmother that, that I know. And um, so they had a couple of more kids and my mom took them to church. Um, and then when my mom was in high school, her mother, her stepmother, um, started going to church with them and she accepted Christ. And all her siblings, my mom accepted Christ, all her siblings accepted Christ, um, all from a lady who took a three-year-old and a one-year-old 
to the nursery, basically. So I can't wait. I have no idea who the, the lady's name or anything. I don't know if my mom does. Um, she may. But so I look forward to heaven when I can tell her thank you. And I think part of her reward will, will be seen. The dozens, I'm sure, of people who've come to know Christ because she took two little kids to a nursery. It's amazing. It's, it's, it's really cool. I had lunch with Andy uh, Newberry on Friday before I saw these videos, and, and he and I were talking about the power of judgment when it comes to... It got you again, didn't it? <laughs> the power of judgment. And as we sat there and talked about this tendency in us to look at judgment as this scary thing someday rather than recognizing in addition to the sins, whatever being revealed as God, as God has forgiven and cleanses those what an amazing idea of God saying, okay, whatever this lady's name is, and we don't even know that her time for judgment sitting up there, whatever it looks like, and we don't know, but sitting up there on the stage with Jesus, and Jesus says, because remember, there's no hurry. I mean, you got eternity. It doesn't, take if each, it doesn't matter if each person's judgment takes 10,000 years. There's no rush. There's no sense of urgency when it comes to the eternal heaven. And so he goes, hey, let's, let's you know what, while we've got you up here real quick, do you remember that three-year-old and that one-year-old that you took to church when you were when you were a young woman, like, do you remember that? Well, where, where are you in the room? So stand up. Tell you what, not just you stand up, all your kids stand up. Everyone your kids have ministered to and you've ministered to and everyone they've ministered to stand up because you were faithful to take a three-year-old to church and the church was faithful to have a nursery where those kids could sit and probably hear the gospel week after week, maybe even before they could understand it through song and through teaching and through activities. That's faithfulness. That's what we're called to. It's who we are. It's what we do. And we go, well, that sounds weird, or I don't know, that seems scared, or I don't know what I'm doing, or I'm like, well, it's a good thing it's not about you then, huh? It's time for us to grow out of that into the maturity of the person of Jesus Christ. Encouraging one another so long as it's called today. That's what we're called to do. This is who we are. It's what we do. Matthew 28 is another famous what we do passage. It's where we get the term live, teach, and tell. We get that um, from our mission statement. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. It's important as we practice this, and as we practice Deuteronomy 6, and investing in and engaging in our own children, why not multiply that effect? So we have another testimony to uh, engage with here. Children's ministry um, has impacted my life in a way that, um, well, I guess through my mom. My mom worked in children's ministry for 40 plus years, uh, mainly at First Baptist Church downtown, which is the parent church of South Spring. I can remember specifically, there were two things. One was we always were singing every Sunday. It seemed like we were singing. And then the other thing that I specifically remember, we made one time replicas of the Ten Commandments. <clears throat> and so, um, and I thought that was pretty cool. I mean, I was probably about four. So for me to remember this, is that's, that's pretty impressive that I can remember making this. But... And the replicas were kind of like the old Charlton Heston movie, Ten Commandments. It kind of looked like that. And so uh, anyway, so we, she had made this dough that we formed into tablets, if you will. And, uh, and we wrote the Ten Commandments on there. And then she had some 
cool coffee that she used to stain it to make it look old and and stuff for me it was like wow this is really, really cool at, at four years old but yeah she taught for for many decades in fact yeah. um, and probably would still be today if she could my desire to be in church and to be uh, walking in a faith that is real I think points directly to a lot of those foundational moments with my mother. She had a simple faith that, and she was letting it come through the love she had for children, you know. She was laying the foundational truths that were there um, for me and the children that she taught of, you know, where are they gonna end up in the future? Obviously, you know, that's in God's hands. But, you know, those foundational truths tend to draw you back to the truth that is Christ. I love the idea of someone training their <clears throat> own children, as Deuteronomy 6 teaches that we would, training their own children, but doing so in a setting. It wasn't like Ken was the only one in there in the room with his mom when they're making the Ten Commandments tablets. All these other kids who, who these different lessons we hold on to in different ways and engage with that. <clears throat> in Luke 10... Jesus says to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. <clears throat> I always thought this was a little bit of a strange um, verse, strange passage, because I always had kind of read it as Jesus saying, Wow, there's a lot of work to be done. Pray God sends someone to do it. It's like, I mean, there's, I mean, there's, there's them. They could be doing it. Verses... Realizing the truth of this, when Jesus is giving this assignment, he is giving it to them as he sends them. He's actually sending out the apostles at this point. And so he's telling them, it isn't a prayer of sin laborers since I'm not going. Sin harvesters since I'm not harvesting. It is sin more laborers to come alongside me as I harvest. Send more workers to work alongside me as I work. Don't leave me in this alone, Lord. If you've served in church ministry much, you've probably felt that experience of going, where is everybody else? Where are the other people? I need to have some of these people coming alongside them, me and serving with me. Sometimes that's a lack of faithfulness on our part that we're not stepping up and serving alongside one another. That is definitely the case. But maybe also part of it is, that we're, we're not doing a good job of investing in one another to prepare others to serve. We're not willing to step on each other's toes and challenge them to serve. If there's people who we know who are being discipled alongside of us who aren't serving in the local church in some way, maybe we're too afraid to step in and go, I don't see your excuse for this. I don't see your argument for not being invested and not being engaged. Sometimes burnout just means we forgot to teach and train people to delegate to and to replace us. And so if we're just doing the work and we're not training and educating and leading, then we're missing out as well. We need to be in doing that as, as in addition to serving ourselves. I will also say this. I don't know how many of you have ever heard of the 80-20 rule. The 80-20 rule especially applies to churches. And one of them is that 80% of the work is done by 20% of the people. I will just tell you, in my mind, I think that's sin. I think that's completely inappropriate. 
I think the truth of the matter is that 80% of the work should be done by, I don't know, 80% of the people. The idea that you would have 80% consumers, years later, sometimes they've been just coming and coming and coming and consuming and consuming and consuming, and they don't ever get to work. You're not experiencing the gospel as you should if you're not serving locally, nationally, internationally at the opportunities you get. If we aren't eagerly looking for an opportunity to serve, then we're missing out on something that the gospel has for us. Maybe part of what he says is, Lord, I pray that you would send more harvesters that I can teach and that I can train and that I can encourage so long as it's called today. Moses' father-in-law had a confrontation with Moses when he watched Moses all day, every day doing the work. And in verse 17 of Exodus 18, Moses' father-in-law says to him, what you're doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear themselves out for the thing is too heavy for you. You're not able to do it alone. If you're part of the 80%, please stop leaving the work of the ministry to the 20%. If you're, if you're one of those people who goes like, oh, we pay staff to do that. Yeah, stop that mindset entirely. That's not how this works. The job of the staff is to equip the saints. That's you. Not to do the work for you. But the fact that we would let a handful of people do the work for all of us is not okay. Now, why? Why is this activity? Why is this what we do? If you've heard me teach much, you know what I believe about this. What we do must always be dependent upon what? Who we are. So we don't just have activity. The world's got plenty of activity. Busyness is the competition. Let the world have it. But instead, identity is where we are once again The sermon series can't keep up with the changing world. It's amazing how it keeps being confronted with us. I think I grew up a little bit of this, and I'm not blaming anybody for this. No one said this. I think think it was always just kind of taught to me that, yes, being a Christ follower is super important and the most important thing, but only slightly behind that would be being a good American. Only slightly less than being a good Christian was being a good citizen, a productive citizen, pursuing the American dream. I think that was always, always there, just back there. I'm proud that I'm American, and I don't, I don't mean that I'm proud as in I think I'm superior. I'm proud for what America has represented for a long time. I'm proud to have been there to see my grandfather buried with a flag over his coffin. I'm proud for many of our founders and their ideas and their ideals. Truthfully, I am a patriot. I love this country. And being an American has been a root of strength for me, even in regards to my faith at times. But we're not passing that on to our children in the same way. And by we, I don't mean that we're failing in some way. I don't mean we, and that we need to change that and somehow fix that. I mean we as in that nation doesn't exist in the same way that it did when I was a kid. I mean we as a nation are no longer doing that. We can grieve that. But the good news is we have the solution to that, and we alone have the solution to that. According to Jim Dennison and the the sources that he cited this week in his article, after the 2000 election, only 18%, listen to that, only 18% of Democrats said George W. Bush won fairly in the year 2000. After the 2016 election, 66% of Democrats believed that Russia had hacked the election. And now, I don't know what this number is, as of Wednesday, the number was 67%. 
And now 67% of Republicans believe that the 2020 election was, quote, rigged. This was not the case when I was a child. Someone won and someone lost, and you were mad about it or you were happy about it. But there wasn't this universal belief that the other side cheated, lied, stole, as has been the case in the last few elections. That's the America that we're handing over. The solution to that is not merely a political solution. It is Jesus Christ. And it may be that that has to be the only solution because that just second best counterfeit, that just like mm, almost as good as following Jesus, being a good American, never was true. As much of a patriot as I am. And it hurts me to say these things and it pained me to write some of them. But the truth is, what are we going to leave the next generation of American Christians? I hope it's something more than America. As great as America can be. The next generation of young people, they don't have the same mindset. They're looking and they're not seeing as much to be proud of as we were raised with. And I don't think they're wrong. That's hard. It's grieving. Jim Dennison also that same day said that if he was going to do a sermon this week, I don't know if he's doing one this week or not, in his sermon passage, he went to one of my favorite identity passages, the passage of the salt and light. Matthew 5.13 says, You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. It's important we don't get distracted from what where our identity actually is as being the salt of Christ. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Notice that last phrase, that they see what we do and they give glory to whom? To your Father who is in heaven. That's who we're ambassadors for. That's who we're trying to represent. If by some miracle, as it did for the last 200 years, that also happens to make you a good citizen, great. When you've got to choose, we have loyalty to only one. There is one hope, one faith, one God and Father. One. And that's vitally important for us to remember. How do we teach that? How do we train that? Part of it is the level of investment we're prepared to give. Got another testimony. And by the way, you just got to watch. Uh, how Perry and Kelly look at each other while they're talking. I think they like each other a lot. That's, they're a sweet, back in the back of the book. They're a sweet couple. If, you, if you're looking for someone to disciple you, I highly recommend them. Let's, uh, let's see Perry. And the uh, story I said was um, a man named Thomas Griffiths, who was big, big, big man. Uh, think like Highland Games, that, that kind of big. Um, or at least the people that we see at the Highland Games. Um, especially for us as little elementary school boys was just this great big man. And um, he, would, he was so gentle with all of us. So this was on the Navajo reservation. So it was me and um, a room full of little Navajo boys who were all you know, dirty, dusty little boys. And, and he would come in and love on us and wrestle with us and, and had us memorizing scripture. And every time we memorized scripture, he would give us a book. And there were always books about, you know, Indian themes or cowboy themes, because that was the, the era. And, and so we would memorize scripture because we wanted to get the books, but he was getting, getting that into us. And um, in our church, well, my mom, we were a missionary family also. My mom was doing a, 
a children's program, so we're kind of doing a, a musical thing. But we're doing this, and, and I was David, and so he was Goliath. And I was just this shy little kid, and, and got up and sang my little song, and, and he starts tromping towards me, and, and I'm swinging the, the sling around, and finally let the, the rock go. And when I did, he, he just fell. And of course, this is you know on the reservation, so it's, it's dusty and dirty. And so when he hit the, the podium, the platform, he just dust went everywhere. But he knocked himself out. When he fell down, he knocked himself out. But this, this great big man um, just loved on us and showed all of us little boys that, uh, that men could love because most of their environment was that the dads were either absent or they were alcoholics. Um, absent sometimes even in the home, but just not involved. And here was this man that, that just loved on us and, and cared for us and, and wanted us to know Jesus and, uh, and showed us that as big as he was, Jesus was even bigger. So salt and light sometimes looks like Indian books and wrestling and dust and and knocking yourself unconscious for the entertainment of some kids. <clears throat> That's called an all-in bet. When you, when you fall so hard as Goliath, you knock yourself out. This is our legacy. Each of us have stories like this. This is the legacy of, a Jew, of Jewish God-fearers who are intended to be a blessing to all nations. The legacy of the apostles who risked their lives to hold fast to the truth of the gospel. The legacy of the first Christ followers, the little Christs who reached out into a completely pagan world and revolutionized it. The legacy of missionaries and priests and monks and students, no matter what their vocation. In the words of the Apostle Peter, 1 Peter 2, 9 begins, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. See, this represents the creation of a new race. The Greek word there is where you get the word genetic, the genos, the family. It just means having a common, we are common descendants of an ancestor. We are all one family, and there's a new family that Jesus Christ was creating. Ask yourself if you didn't pick that up. This is a new family, a chosen family, a family chosen for the possession of Jesus Christ of God the Father, for His possession, in order to express Him well, in order to show His character well. What is a family? What do you call it when a new family is created, that the children are chosen for His possession? We call that an adopted family. And we are an adopted family. That's us. We are Jesus Christ's adopted family. This is a family legacy going back for 2,000 years from Christian parent to Christian child for all that time. Why? that we may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called us out of darkness into His marvelous light. Do we? Have we lost sight of that? Have we have a little bit of a mission drift? Have we forgotten who we are and what we're supposed to be doing and that our very lives and our words should proclaim the excellencies of Him who called us out of darkness into His marvelous light? Is that what we're defending? Is that what we're talking about nonstop? Everyone should be investing somewhere. Everyone should be investing somewhere in God's kingdom. We should all have, as I said in that very first sermon, in our minds, www.yournameministries.com. And ask yourself, what's on that page? What can people click on and link to? What videos are there? 
What are people looking at when they go, oh, what are his ministries or her ministries? We need to vest and be invested. We've postponed because of the alleged weather. We've postponed the, um, the life groups for another week, but we've got a special needs family group. If you've got a special needs kid in your family, man, that, that, that connection and that connectivity can be really powerful. We've got the motherhood uh, ministry for moms. We've got Grief Share at this point. That's still planned to go. Life 101, marriage and parenting with uh, the Live Says and their experience and their teaching for many, many years on these topics. These are things you can still sign up for. You certainly have no excuse to not be equipped and being further equipped. We have Wednesday night studies. We have Sunday morning studies. And we would love to have a lot more on Sunday morning. But we need to grow in the ministry to children so that we can support those. You're not sure where to start? Then start with Second Service Preschool. That's where you can sign up today. You're not ready to go overseas. You're not ready to have 40 orphans living in your home like Keith does. Maybe you think working with children is just discipleship for them. It certainly is, but it's also discipleship for you. And it's a safe place to learn how to be a disciple and how to disciple others. Older people, it's time to serve again. There's not a retirement age when it comes to ministry. In fact, the only reason I can see to retire vocationally is to have more time and margin to serve in ministry. That to me makes total sense. Well, that makes sense. But just to stop doesn't make sense to me. Singles, the Apostle Paul would say that you have more margin maybe than anyone else in the kingdom to serve. To just stay as a single, as a consumer, is not appropriate in God's capital C church. We need to be investing and being involved. You need to be serving and signing up. In fact, some of you, it may be your calling to stay single all of your life so that this margin never goes away. That is a high calling. That is not second best. In fact, the Apostle Paul, referring to that as second best, the Apostle Paul would consider fighting words. He would say it's first best. Families. Listen, people are ministering to your family. We should be ministering to their families. This is part of who we are. This is the, in the unity and diversity of who we are, no matter who we are, this is what we're called to. Now, naturally, of course, I have to take a second and remind us that, of course, we may be disqualified from one form of service or another. Of course, that's the case. If you want to sing, but you can't sing, we're probably not going to have you do that. If you want to work with kids, but you frighten children, you may not be the right choice for that. It's not your fault. You want to lead, but because of what's going on in your family, you don't have the margin to lead. I mean, I'd like to serve as a piano player. Unfortunately, I can't play the piano. And at this stage, that seems less and less likely to happen all the time. Maybe when I retire, I can, I can learn those skills and I can minister in that way. Maybe you can. You find out what your gifts and your skills and your abilities and your options are, and then take your preferences and set them on an altar and drive a knife through them and set them on fire and then serve, as God has called us to do. We have a lot of people called staff at this church who will help you come alongside you to equip you in these. We actually have a specific staff member who that's his actual job description is to do that, Lance Sturrock. And if you say, I don't know how to serve or where to serve, I promise you Lance will find a place for you. He will meet with you and talk with you and help you figure that out. There's lots of people at the church who can do that. In the meantime, consider second service preschool. The highly prepared incredibly well-guided, very carefully shepherded work of giving our children something from God's Word. 
You go, I don't, I don't know how to do that. It's okay. You barely have to do anything at all. It is vitally important. Every single ministry that we have here is vitally important and life-changing, as you heard in the testimonies. If you're, if you're a door greeter helping people find a seat, that is a vitally important ministry. There are people here because of that ministry. If you're someone who serves or gives or who greets, whatever it is, all of these are vitally important. None of them are replaceable. They all need to be the case. Look to give in those steps. My story is this. There was a woman named Mrs. Pat. And when my family was finally invited to church when I was six years old at New Hope Congregational Methodist Church outside of Nacogdoches, and I came to Sunday school as a kid, and Mrs. Pat was my Sunday school teacher, and Mrs. Pat was a wizard with a flannel graph. If you don't know what a flannel graph is, look it up. It's worth seeing. This, is, this, is, this was her ministry. Week after week after week. And by the way, that's including a Sunday school class of six-year-olds that included me. And yet she came back. Week after week, she was faithful. Anytime, listen, anytime you see me get excited about God's Word, anytime you see me get passionate about the depth and the power of God's Word, anytime you see me get caught up and excited about the people who we meet in God's Word and their stories and the accounts of what God did through them, thank God for Mrs. Pat, because that's who taught me to love God's Word like that. When I was six, starting when I was six, and I didn't know the Bible from Mother Goose. So I thank God for Mrs. Pat and for Mrs. Pam and for Mrs. Cheryl and for Mr. Pete and for Mrs. Tracy, all teachers who I remember vividly and the things they taught me. I thank God for my parents who taught me and who took me to where these people could teach me and influence me. In order to be a church that is prepared to raise up a new generation, this is us. Listen, this is a prayer. We should be begging God for this opportunity. Look what the psalmist said in Psalm 71. I'm going to end on this. Look at this. So even to old age and gray hairs, O God, do not forsake me until I proclaim your might to another generation, your power to all those who come. Are you desperate to pass on the truth of who God is to another generation before he takes you? Are you begging God to give you just one more person that you can share the gospel with before your time runs out? Just one more child who can hear about his might, who can learn about his commandments, who can see what it's like, who can teach them that it's okay for a man to love, who can take a child into a nursery and impact generations of Christians? It, it seems strange to me that we're not fighting for these positions when I look at God's Word. Stand with me and let's pray. God, you are faithful and you have offered the solution, the cure for death. God, I pray that you would help us to be desperate to share this. Lord, please, please do not let me go down to gray hairs as you've already in so many ways done, do not forsake me until I proclaim your might to another generation, until I proclaim the excellencies of you who called us out of darkness and into your wonderful light. God, I pray you would give me those opportunities, and I thank you, Lord, that you have given us those opportunities. I pray that every one of us who are here, who are listening online, who are listening to this this next week and watching this, I pray that our hearts have laid upon it the conviction 
of proclaiming your might and your power and your identity before the time comes for us to die, and that could come any time. Lord, I pray that as the snow falls, we would rest, your word would rest on our hearts and on our souls. Would comfort us and challenge us and move us to live life according to your gospel so that people will see those good deeds and give glory to you. That's our prayer in your son's name. Amen.